Well, good morning. For those of you that don't know me, I am, uh, my name's Russ. I'm one of the elders here at Ephesus Church. And um, Pastor Nick, our normal preaching pastor, is out for the month of June. And today he's actually at Grace Baptist Church in Commerce, preaching at Pastor Murray Brett's church. So I um, just wanted you to know that. Prayed for him this morning, so very uh, thankful, though, that I can be up in the pulpit today. So just wanted you to know that it's kind of hard when you only preach once or twice a year. It's kind of hard to, um, sometimes we have a lot to say, and we want to kind of squeeze it into one or two. So this is going to be a, kind of like a drag drag racing sermon. We're going to start fast, go fast, and stop fast. So I um, apologize, but I got a lot that I want to convey this morning, a lot of God's Word I want to give to you. And the reason that I've chose Romans 1 as our text this morning is my goal here this morning is to encourage you and equip you to engage our culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I really want you to be encouraged to be salt and to be light in our culture. And also, uh, I'm going to be laying the groundwork a little bit for a Sunday school class we're going to have next trimester on apologetics. So um, a little bit of a selfish plug there maybe. But we do have a lot to cover. So if you want to go ahead and turn to Romans 1, um, we're going to read the whole chapter, but we're only going to focus on the first five or six verses. We're going to skip down to verses 15 and look at uh, several of those verses through the end of the chapter. So the book of Romans is a book of the Bible written by the Apostle Paul. And we, we're pretty sure that he never had visited the church at Rome when he wrote this. In verse 11, it says that he longed to see them. And it's not certain how the church in Rome started. Most people think someone was in Jerusalem at Pentecost. They became a Christian, got saved, and went back to Rome. And somehow a church started like that. But Paul's main goal, at least here in chapter 1, seems to be to explain uh, to the Roman Christians the power and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And also, throughout this uh, chapter and the rest of the book, he's going to be talking about issues related to the Jew-Gentile interaction in the church there. So Paul's language of declaration in Romans makes, really makes Romans somewhat stand out among all the books in the New Testament. I'm going to quote from a man named K. Scott Oliphant, and I'm going to really, a lot of my, what I say this morning, I want to give him a lot of credit beforehand. A lot of my thoughts this morning come from a, a book that he's written called The Battle Belongs to the Lord. But I, want to, I do want to give him credit this morning. But in that, he says this of Romans. He says, I quote, The Lord has seen fit to use the book of Romans in a marvelous way in the history of the church. Augustine, considered by some the greatest of the church fathers, was converted by reading Romans thirteen fourteen. Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk, was changed forever by his understanding of Romans 1, 17. He was used by God to reform the church and to set some of its most basic principles back in place. The men who worked for several years to write the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms were more dependent on Augustine than on anyone else. Its truths, Romans, have been singularly powerful in building up the church of Jesus Christ. So let's read Romans chapter 1 together. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through its prophets, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, 
through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with the Spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation to both, both to Greeks and to barbarians, or non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew, knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So a lot there. So we obviously won't be going over everything, but um, let's start out where Paul starts out, which is the gospel in verse 1. Paul, Paul, set, Paul says he's set apart for the gospel of God concerning his son, it says in verse 3. So what I do, I want to spend a few minutes talking about the gospel. So we see here that the gospel is not the gospel of you. It's not the gospel of me. It is the foundation of everything we do. The gospel is our framework to explain reality. 
It's the foundation we stand on. It should be how we see the world and God through the lens of the gospel. Now, the gospel, in verse 2, Paul says the gospel has been promised beforehand through his prophets in the scriptures. The book of Hebrews tells us that the gospel was preached in the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And now Paul here tells us it has been preached through the prophets. So one example of that is Isaiah. Isaiah is very big on the good news. He talks about the coming age of God's salvation. And he uses the term, or the Old Testament uses the term Jerusalem. Jerusalem in the Old Testament becomes this cosmic place, this huge city where all the nations are inhabited, where all the nations live. And within it, there's no need for sun or moon because God is the only light. The gates are called praise. This is not a normal city, but refers to the new Jerusalem, a new heavens and a new earth. The prophets of old speak of the gospel. So what is the gospel? So current, our current evangelical church, churches, my opinion is for the most part, teach and preach a partial or incomplete gospel. So you might, you might hear the gospel explained as the four spiritual laws or even among some of our Calvinistic churches, there's a focus on the five points of Calvinism or it's asked Jesus into your heart. But I am proposing that the gospel must be about more than just you and me. It's about more than just where I'm going to spend the afterlife or my personal justification by faith alone. Though that is definitely the beginning and the foundation of the gospel and is necessary because God, the gospel for each of us does start with our individual salvation. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't exhaust the biblical message of the gospel. The gospel is bigger. It's bigger than we know. It's the whole counsel of God. It's a big gospel. Why do we need 66 different books to give us a story of redemption. It's the story of the gospel because God's story of the gospel is big, it's huge, and we'll learn it's powerful. Now, verse 4 says that Jesus was born a descendant of David according to the flesh. And this is very important, especially to the Jews, but this, is ex- this would be exciting when they heard that. And this should be exciting when we hear it. Jesus was born a descendant of David. This is all about Jesus being king. That's the only reason they would need to know this. He was born to be king, and he has the right to be king because he is a descendant of David. He will sit on the Davidic throne. He has the right to be the Messiah, the anointed chosen king of Israel. And this means biblically, if you're the king of all the nations, you are the Lord of all the earth. The Messiah and Lord go together. This is why Herod wanted to see Jesus dead, because he understood this. The Son of God, born of David, is a threat to the powers and the principalities of the earth, and they knew that when they heard about it. Verse 4 says he's the Son of God. Now, we see this in the Old Testament, and this is probably alluding to Psalm 2-7. But King David was also called the Son of God. He was chosen of God to be a ruler over God's kingdom. So this also directly challenged the Roman Empire, the culture to which Paul was writing. The Roman coin said, Caesar, the son of God. Basically starting with the second Caesar, called himself the son of God. The emperor had a divine right to claim because they claimed to be the sons of God. But Paul is declaring that Jesus, not Caesar, is the son of God. Jesus has the authority and the right to rule. 
To say Jesus is Lord was to say Caesar is not. And this is another huge part of the gospel. Next in verse 4, it talks about by his resurrection from the dead. So this speaks of Jesus' victory on the cross. Jesus has the right to rule because he defeated his enemies. The Messiah, and the Jews knew this, the Messiah had to defeat God's enemies. And he starts with death, the biggest, baddest enemy of all. He took on the most powerful enemy right at the beginning. It was de- death was defeated by the resurrection. And the resurrection is not just a miracle, but it's the justice of God returning to the earth, returning to the world. There's no greater insult to God or injustice in the world than death. So this sheds some light on the rest of our passage because if death, the greatest injustice, the greatest terror to humanity, the greatest insult to God, if this has been defeated by the resurrection of Jesus, what does that mean about God's other enemies who are not nearly as strong or as powerful or as terrifying as death? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? His, his, Paul is telling this to churches who are being persecuted. They're being murdered due to their belief in the gospel. So by consequence, if death has no power, neither did the Roman Empire, and neither do our enemies today. Jesus has been declared the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So the instruction to Adam and Eve to not eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil was an instruction or a law to preserve life. The devil's lie was, you won't surely die. But God's image image bearers were not meant to die. Death is a great injustice, and the Son of God came to defeat that injustice. Verse 5 talks about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So the gospel is huge. It's cosmic. It's massive. Not only does it rip out our idolatry, it rips out our wickedness, our rebellion, our hatred for others, our autonomy to be gods of ourselves. But it also reaches into the farthest reaches of the world, into poverty and tyranny and oppression. All these are being defeated by the Son of God who was declared to be so by his victory over death itself. This, my friends, is the rest of the gospel. It's the rest of the story, the obedience of the nations. Paul takes the Great Commission very seriously. We are called by Jesus in the Great Commission and Paul here through the gospel to redeem, to restore, to liberate, to disciple and teach the nations. Jesus, who has defeated death, surely has the power to do this. So are you in bondage today? Is there some lie, some secret sin, something in your past, some insecurity about yourself, about status or money or race? The gospel of God concerning the Son of God, who is declared such by his victory over death, can liberate you from it all by faith and obedience. This is that observance that that Jesus said in the Great Commission teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So by faith and obedience, you can be liberated. Somebody who hears this someday could be locked up in a prison cell for the gospel. You need to remember there's nothing our God cannot do. There's no place that the gospel cannot penetrate and conquer. 
The gospel of God concerning Jesus is bigger than you, it's bigger than me, and it's more glorious and liberating and joyful than you and I can even imagine. So Jesus said in Matthew 4, 17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the good, this good news announcement by God himself, who announced the kingdom of heaven has come to the world through his firstborn, or usually when you see firstborn, that means unique, one and only, one of a kind, through his firstborn, who has been declared the Son of God through his defeat over death and every authority and power, both earthly and spiritual, and they all owe him obedience. So I think to further understand this book, we need to try and understand what first century Christians were going through, and I'm not going to be able to do that well, but Christianity came on the scene and changed everything. God's people were narrowly defined for centuries as the nation of Israel, but the coming of Christ expanded God's people to now include Gentiles. The dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles was destroyed by Jesus. Ephesians 2, 14 through 16 is just one of many places that speak to that. Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, For he, Jesus, himself is our peace, who has made us both, both Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances or the religious ceremonies, the ceremony law, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So God's people are to be found among every tribe, tongue, and nation, and eventually to include all nations. This was a radical shift, and it happened and only could happen because God sent his son into the world. So Christians quite naturally struggled to find their identity. They naturally had a lot of questions. If they were not to be identified with the ceremonial laws and customs of the nation of Israel, how were they? How were they to be identified? How were they to know how God viewed them? What is their relationship to God's old covenant people? How should, they, how should they interact and treat them? And these are some of the main issues that Paul addressed in the book of Romans. They were more than likely both Jew and Gentile in the Roman church. And these were probably a lot of the issues they had questions about. But Paul answers these questions with a thorough explanation of the gospel. The gospel will bring clarity, and it brings clarity. So now, so let's move forward. Let's skip forward down to verses 15 and 16. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Paul's first concern here is to let the Romans know that the gospel is powerful and that the gospel is God's. It's not Paul's idea. It's not something that he just made up. It's the very power of the creator of the universe. It's the power that saves both Jews and Gentiles. And that's everybody, folks. Atheists, Muslims, rednecks, academics, liberals, conservatives, Yankees, Southerners, Westerners, Africans, Europeans, everybody. And he is not ashamed of it. Why should he, or me, or you, why should we be ashamed of it? It's powerful. It's the good news. 
So in verse 17, we see that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So this power of the gospel comes from the fact that it reveals the righteousness of God. One of the basic questions of humanity always centers, I think, around acceptance. We seek it constantly. We seek to be accepted. It's on full display, right? Our horizontal acceptance, though, with each other is just a shadow of what we're ultimately looking for, and that is acceptance from God. So we usually do a good job of creating idols and false gods that accept us exactly how we are, or maybe with some minor changes here and there. But this is the basis or the reason for our search for significance and meaning. It's our acceptance with God. So verse 17 is telling us more than just what God had done for us, and that's a lot. He did a lot. But it also tells us about God himself. God's righteousness is revealed in the fact that he does not and he cannot just forgive sin by sweeping it under the rug. He is holy and just. Holiness and justice come from him. He is not just in the business of forgiving sins. It's not just his job. You know, he's not obligated to forgive everyone. A lot of people may have the attitude, well, I'm just going to sin and God's going to forgive me. Well, God, it's not his job. He doesn't have to forgive you. God cannot change his standards or his mind about sin, or he would not be God. He is bound only by who he is himself. His standards are an expression of who he is, and he is unchangeable. So God could not just wipe away our sin as if it never existed. He couldn't just forget about it. If he did, he would cease to be a good and a just God. So he sent his son to take our place, to pay the penalty for anyone who would be accepted and forgiven by God. So Jesus' death on the cross was not his punishment, but it was our punishment. He died for our sins, not his. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So his son's sacrifice was accepted by a holy God because he lived a perfect, holy life, in obedience to the law of God. So in this way, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Jesus, the perfect and holy God-man, cleared the way for an imperfect people. He is the way, the truth, and the life. That way is revealed in the gospel in Jesus. God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel because the righteousness of God is revealed first in Jesus Christ and then in us through him. So quoting Scott Oliphant again, he says, This is why Paul says that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. He emphasizes that the righteousness of God, while going out to everyone in the gospel, is not a righteousness that applies to everyone. Remember that the intent of the book of the Romans is to explain how the two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, are brought together under the gospel. This verse gives us a hint. It tells us that Jews and Gentiles can share in this revealed righteousness only by faith in Jesus Christ. To put it another way, anyone who has faith, everyone who believes, verse 16, is credited with this revealed righteousness as well. The righteousness belongs to Jesus. When we are united to him by faith, we are credited with his righteousness as well. But Romans 1 gives us not only the good news... But the bad news, specifically God's wrath. 
And this is where we're going to be pretty much the rest of the morning. So verses 17 or 18, and 18. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So why the sudden switch in verse 17 and 18 to God's wrath? Seems like a pretty quick turn there. Is there a connection between the righteousness of God and the wrath of God? Well, let's see. Verse 18, it starts with four. So when you see a four or a therefore, you always have to ask, what's it there, what is it there for, right? What's the four there for? Um, so verse 18 is definitely connected to verse 17 because of our four. So one thing Paul is pointing out is that God reveals himself in different ways, and he reveals different things about himself. In the gospel, God reveals his righteousness, and he's about to tell us how he also reveals his wrath. But first, what is wrath? This is probably when we think of wrath, we think, we think of some kind of cruelty or some out-of-control, monstrous type of anger, right? But God's wrath is neither of these things. It's a, it is an anger, but it's an anger under control. And it's a disposition uh, towards sin that flows from his holiness. So biblically, the idea of God being holy means he's altogether different from his creation. He is separated from anything sim, uh, sinful and must enact justice against violations of his law, which is what sin is. And the law that sin violates, God's law, flows from his character and is a representation of who God is. So sin against God's law is, by correlation, a sin against God directly. It's sin against him personally. He takes it personal. And sin must be punished or God would not remain just and holy. So wrath is God's response to sin. So in verse 18, still, we see that Paul wants us to know what circum- in what circumstances is the wrath of God revealed and why not God's grace or mercy. So it is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God's wrath is revealed everywhere. It comes down from heaven, and his anger is aimed at the wickedness and sinfulness of mankind. And next he tells us that men or mankind by or with or through their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Another way of saying this is they hold down the truth in their unrighteousness. A common example of that are, uh, is like a beach ball holding it underwater in the pool. It wants to come up. It's there, but you're suppressing it. You're pushing it down. But what is this truth that people outside of Christ suppress? Well, verse 19 starts to answer it. It is what can be known about God. So Paul makes a remarkable statement that this truth is plain and it's clear. It's evident to them. To unregenerate, unbelieving people. Are you following that? To unregenerate, unbelieving people, this truth is clear. It's plain. It's visible. To everyone, as plain as the world around us that we see every single day. But how is it clear? Well, is it clear because everyone has good eyesight or because everyone is smart or because everybody has searched out for it on their own and found it? Absolutely not. It's clear because verse 19 says, God has shown it to them. So this is very important. 
So this knowledge is due completely to the revealing activity of God. This knowledge does not result, it's not a result of anyone's intellectual effort or investigating or looking for it. It's not a result of anyone seeking God. We know that because Romans 3.11 tells us that no one seeks after God. No, this knowledge is given by God and we are passive receivers of this knowledge. Everyone receives this knowledge. But now we may be asking, well, what, what can we know about God? Verse 20, Paul takes us back to the creation of the world. And by doing so, he indicates the universality of this knowledge. It covers everyone in the whole world. Paul tells us that the knowledge comes from the things that have been made ever since the creation of the world. So God's general revelation, this creation that's all around us, is embedded, or his general revelation is embedded in creation. From the very beginning, God has revealed himself in his creation, clearly to us and in us, because we're what? We're creations of God. Each one of us reveals God to the other, and you yourself reveal yourself to God because you are cre- you're a creation of God. So God has revealed and is revealing in creation what? His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. So I understand this to mean these are not some specific characteristics of God, but that this means what makes God God, generally speaking, is known about him. Some have described it as all the divine perfections are included in general revelation. And this is why we'll see later, Paul says that mankind has no excuse for being held accountable to God. Have you ever wondered that? Why, why does God say we have no... Why does the people in the deep, deepest, darkest, darkest jungle of Africa or wherever, why do they have no excuse? Well, this is why. Paul can say that man has no excuse for being held accountable to God. All of this genuine knowledge is God made known by him and known by all humanity. Now, this is important. This is not a vague knowledge. This is not a potential knowledge or something that someone can maybe have. It is not a feeling or an abstract knowledge that a God somewhere out there exists. This is a true, clear knowledge of the God who exists. Because if it's a knowledge of God, it's a knowledge of the true God, of the real God, of the only God that's in existence. So the rock-solid truth of the matter, according to what Paul has written here by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is that all of us, all creatures of God made in his image, we know him. Even those who are outside of Christ, because they live and move in God's creation, and because God makes himself plain in that creation, clearly and plainly, they know him. Verse 21. So remember, though, we're talking about God's wrath, right? So God's wrath is against our wickedness. And the root of our wickedness is not ignorance, but suppression of the truth. Let me say that again. The root of our wickedness is not ignorance, but suppression of the truth. This suppression is the foundation for our wickedness. Now, we know this truth is the clear and universal knowledge of God, which God gives us and gives to us himself. So I want to let this sink in a little bit, what Paul's telling us. Well, this means that there are really no true atheists, right? There are really no true atheists. Now, obviously, some people say in their heart there is no God, but the Bible calls them what? Fools. It calls them fools. And the reason they're fools is, It's because they're declaring something that they know is not true. 
If they didn't know that, they wouldn't be a fool. They would just be ignorant. But the Bible says they are a fool because they're declaring something that they know is not true. So atheism or agnosticism is simply the suppression of the knowledge of God. Now, I'm not saying that this means that all people believe or profess knowledge of God. This is part of the very suppression itself, right? They refuse to admit that they have this knowledge. So another way to say this is that all people everywhere are in relationship with God because they have true knowledge of a person who is God. And those who have not placed their faith in Christ are not in a saving relationship, but they are in a covenantal relationship in Adam. So they are in a relationship with God. And I could talk about that for a long time, but come to the Sunday school class and we'll talk about that more. So one point that Paul made in verse 20 is that since all people know God and are clearly confronted with him every day in his creation, then those who suppress this knowledge, again, are without excuse. So the Greek word for excuse is used only here and in chapter 2, verse 1, and it can be translated without an apologetic or without a defense. So those who continue to suppress the truth of God are today and will be on the day of judgment without a defense, without an excuse. So especially in our modern age, we are aware of all the diverse uh, philosophies and elaborate theories that are out there to try to explain away God in order for people to avoid the knowledge of God that is both within them and everywhere around them. We know the opposition to God can be very loud sometimes. But Paul tells us here that all philosophies, all theories, all objections raised against God amount to nothing and are ultimately indefensible. So we need to renew our minds and believe God that this is the case. We need to believe the Bible. We need to believe God that all men know him rather than believe men that they don't. No matter how loud or how obnoxious or how sophisticated or scientific these arguments may sound, they are not capable of a reasoned defense against the truth of God's word, which is the truth of reality. Any and every position that is opposed to Christianity is utterly indefensible, primarily because they're not true. (laughs) Now, before we get too proud about this, we need to remember that we know this only by the grace of God. He has graciously revealed this to us, and we are undeserving of this knowledge. We don't deserve it, but he's graciously given it to us in his word and revealed his word to us. So to be clear here, what Paul is saying is, what is Paul saying is the evidence for God? Well, everything, everything that has been made is the evidence for God. God is known through the things that have been made, and everything is made but God. This is not saying that everything proves God necessarily like winning an argument. As we have already seen that this knowledge is suppressed. But everything, in a sense, shouts God's existence in the way that Psalm 19.2, 1 through 2 says it. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So God's creation declares, it proclaims, it pours out speech, it reveals knowledge. This language, this terminology describes natural and general revelation that God has given all people everywhere. So the evidence for God is is not lacking. It reveals God clearly and visibly and understandably and universally from the smallest particle that people look at in a microscope to the largest galaxy in existence. 
But this is suppressed. So what does that look like when people suppress that? Well, let's find out. One of John Calvin's most quoted statements is that the human heart is an idol factory. So at its, at its core, idolatry is the expression of the suppression of the knowledge of God within us. In verse 21, we see that the suppression of the truth and unrighteousness manifests itself in ingratitude. Those who know God but refuse to honor or acknowledge him refuse to give him thanks. So, you know, I thought about this as I was studying. Is it a routine or a tradition when we give thanks for food and other gifts from God? Is that just something we say? I mean, why, why, do, we, why do we keep doing that all the time? Why not just say it once and be done with it? God, I'm thankful, and then go on with our lives. Well, part of our sanctification in Christ includes an ongoing gratitude for what God has done for us and in us. Ingratitude is very similar to pride. If we are ungrateful to God, this assumes we got what we have by our own efforts, apart from God. We assume we have it because we did it ourselves. This is an affront to the good character of God who supplies us with all good things. So we see that this ingratitude turns into boastful pride in verse 22. And as they claim to be wise in their own eyes... They count themselves among the intellectual elite. Do you see the progression from not giving thanks to I deserve what I have to convincing ourselves we got what we have because of our abilities and then a continued focus on our own advanced abilities? But how does this foolishness arise in verse 22? So professing to be wise may be boastful. That doesn't even make you a fool just because you're boastful. Um... Lost my place here. Sorry. Okay, that doesn't that doesn't just make us boastful. I got it. In verse twenty-three, we see that foolishness comes from a sinful exchange. This is the opposite of the great exchange that we see on the cross. Here we see those who suppress the truth of God exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. So Paul elaborates this in verse 25. He says, Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. So this exchange begins by setting aside what is natural for, for us, which is to glorify God and worship and serve him as our creator, the one in whose image we are made. And this is what we are made to do, to worship and serve our creator. But when we suppress the truth, it doesn't take away our desire to worship. It just replaces God with created objects we would rather worship instead of him. So objects that don't require much from us. As a matter of fact, they are not, as God's creatures, able to not worship. No one is able to not worship. But since they refuse to worship the one true God who constantly reveals himself to them, they have to replace him with something else to worship. So compare, this is like if some, someone came to you and said, you can't worship God. You have to stop worshiping God. Well, that's the same. Our response to that is the same that an unbeliever has when we tell them to stop worshiping their idols. They don't want to do it, just like we wouldn't want to do it. This is the very nature of idolatry, that those who worship the sun or chemical substances or false prophets, false messiahs, false gods, or pleasures, they do not want to give those idols up. They hold tight to their objects of worship. 
And this idolatry a lot of times manifests itself in what we call addictions today. They are idols, so they need to be worshipped and served. They hold us in our grasp and cause wickedness to grow and grow. So again, I want to quote Scott Oliphant. This is what suppression of the truth looks like. It worships, but it does not worship God. It serves, but it denies God what is due him, and so serves an idol. It values wisdom, but is actually foolish. It claims to have truth, but is actually a lie. This leads to a mass of sinful confusion in the lives of unbelievers. So we see here, though, that this comes from the suppression of the knowledge of God that exchanges the worship of God for the worship of idols. And this creates a downward spiral of wickedness in the hearts of these people. So from verse 18 to 23, Paul is describing what he means by suppression of the truth. Now in verse 24 and following, he starts giving us some detail on what the wrath of God being revealed from heaven looks like. And I don't have time to speak about each sin described here, but I want you to notice in verse 24, 26, and 28, the phrase, God gave them up. So there should be no question in our minds that God gives us good things. He gives us gifts to everyone on earth. He causes the rain and sunshine to fall on the just and the unjust, Matthew 5, 44 and 45. He gives families, jobs, food, houses, cars, computers, iPads, vacations, raises, bonuses, talents, intelligence, and more to both Christians. And not only those who are not Christians, but those who reject and curse his name, he gives all these good gifts to. But God also restrains his wrath. He does not judge people for their law-breaking immediately. And he restrains people from being as wicked as they could be, even though we're all born in a state of complete depravity. But usually our sinfulness is not fully expressed because God mercifully restrains, restrains us from carrying out our worst desires. But God's telling us here that there will come a time in some people's lives where he removes his long-held restraint over their sin, and he gives them up to it. He gives them up to live out the wickedness that they desire and that they have chosen for themselves. So this action of God giving people up to lust and passions and debased and darkened minds is an expression of his wrath. An important point, I think, is that Paul's list here are all, or at least in verse 26 and 27, what he points out, and this seems like a clear reference to homosexuality, no matter how you try to argue around it, it's a clear reference to that. But they, these acts are by nature a rebellion. Think about this. It's a rebellion of God's natural order. It's a rebellion of what he considers good and moral. So the irony here is that when God lifts his hand of restraint for those who refuse to acknowledge him in nature, these people will begin to pervert and distort the very nature that God reveals himself to, to them in, in the first place. If they think, if they can distort nature enough, they hope to wipe out the constant reminder of their creator, though this is impossible to do. So these sins are violations of God's law, and they are, in actuality, further sign of God's existence in that they reveal in very high definition, they clearly reveal the evidence of God's anger towards sin and his removal of his gracious hand of restraint from some who rebel against him. We're almost done. Lastly, verse 32. Paul tells us in summary that those who know God and suppress his truth, 
They also know what God requires of them. In short, they know God's law, and they know the just and right penalty for breaking this law is death. But even with this knowledge, they not only do these things, but they give approval to others who do them as well. A truly rational person who, knew, who knows that his sin leads to death would flee from it. But sin is not rational. Sin is anything but rational. Those overtaken by their sin do not respond in reasonable or rational ways. They embrace their sin. They embrace others who share their sin. They pick it for their sin to become legal. And they want to force everyone to accept their sin. Now, brothers and sisters, if Romans 1 isn't God's roadmap to what's happening in our culture, I really don't know what is. Um, God gives us insight here in Romans 1 to people's psyches. He gives us to people's inner being. And we would have this knowledge no other way than from God. So we should apply these truths. He is telling us, he's telling us this for a reason, okay? So here's here's a little bit of application at the end. Here's a very important point I want to make. Back in verses 19, 20, and 21, it said that God is plain to them, and he has shown himself to them. He has been clearly perceived. They are without excuse. Why? Because they know God. So if we understand that all people know God, the God, the only God, the God who made them and everything that was made, then we should never feel that this truth that we communicate, this truth that we defend, we should never feel that that's irrelevant to them. Never should we feel that way. They may act that way, but the Bible tells us, God tells us that that is just an act, that they act like that. They are actively suppressing what they know. And when we speak the truth of God's word, we are lifting that suppressed truth up for them to see even more clearly. And we need to renew our mind with this. We, we don't believe anyone when they tell you they don't believe in God. Believe what God tells you they do. Romans 3, 4, let God be true and every man a liar who contradicts his truth. So, so what is the gospel? Let's go back to the gospel. What is the gospel according to verse 16? And why is Paul not ashamed of it? And why did he lead in with the gospel? He says it is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. So what are we to do? We need to use the power that God has given us. Jesus is far more powerful than any man's depravity. He is the only hope for the suppression of truth. The Bible tells us he has overcome the world. So I want you to be encouraged by this, that we have the power of God for salvation. We can speak to the culture. We can speak to our neighbors with the truth of God's word, knowing we don't have to prove to them that God exists. We don't, we're freed up from that. You do not have to do that. You do not have to prove to people that God exists. They know he exists because he created them and he reveals himself to them every day. So I want you to be freed up to share the gospel. Tell them about Jesus. And when they ask you know, to prove God, say, I don't have to prove him. You know he exists because that is what God tells me. So he's the only hope for this suppression of truth. May our hope and prayer for the world be that they one day worship and serve the creator, Jesus, who rules and reigns, and that God will use us to declare this glorious truth here and to the ends of the earth. 
So today, if you hear his voice, please do not harden your hearts. If you are not a Christian, please repent of your sins and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Come to him, the God you know. Come to him, the God you know, for salvation and redemption and forgiveness of all your sin. Let's pray. Father, I'm so very thankful that we have the clear, the plain, the evident truth that you are God and you have created the heavens and the earth and you've created us to worship you and serve you and to love you and you have redeemed us from suppression of the truth that we all have done. God, we have all suppressed your truth in ungodliness and in unrighteousness, but you sent your son. He laid aside his crown, as we sing about earlier, and he came to earth and lived a perfect life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's by the power of the gospel that we came to know you, that we were redeemed, that our sins were atoned for, and now we can live a life of faith and obedience and joy and happiness because we have peace with our God. We are no longer at enmity. But Father, I thank you that you revealed this to us, that you have been gracious to us. You have loved us while we were yet sinners. You sent Christ to die for us. Father, may this encourage us today. May this give us boldness to be humble yet bold in our discussions with our neighbors, our discussions with our families, our discussions on the street corners, God, and on the sidewalks. I pray that we would be a people who are about bringing the gospel to our community and to the culture and to the world. Lord, we love you. We thank you for... Uh, this day and for our time of worship this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.